0: Good evening. Do you believe in ghosts? Of course not. I knew you didn't. So, if you will just lean back and relax, I'll tell you a little ghost story. Please don't hesitate to turn out your lights. (laughs)
1: From the darkest corners of Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic's Halloween Movie Marathon.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is the first Mrs. McDonough, my lovely wife, Nikia, also known as the unenthusiastic critic.
3: I'm fine with that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no! That's harsh. <laughs> On today's episode, Nikia and I continue our 2020 Halloween movie marathon with her first viewing of a gothic suspense classic, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca from 1940. But first, Nikia, since I'm selling this movie as a sort of ghost story, in which a spooky old mansion is haunted by the presence of its late mistress, I thought we could talk briefly about haunted places right in our own backyard. Mm. Uh, And really, this is for your benefit. I'm sure. Over the more than 15 years you and I have been together, you have often complained that I don't come up with things for us to do together. Yes. So I thought I would present you with some options for seasonally appropriate outings here in Chicago.
3: I was more thinking about dinners, or
2: you know, that's so boring.
3: Art exhibits, or no,
2: that's live music. No, or, that's boring. Okay, sure. Uh, and I think I, I think this is good. I think it'll help us get at some of your feelings about ghosts and haunted places, etc., and provide a much-needed boost for Chicago's beleaguered tourist industry. <laughs> Uh, And some of these will have to wait till next year, of course, due to the pandemic, but I think there are a few of these we can actually do this Halloween, Mm -hmm. allowing us to observe proper social distancing strategies.
3: I'm not going to risk COVID for some ghost nonsense, (laughs) so... It's unlikely I'll want to do anything you have prepared, but okay.
2: Okay, so I'll give you a couple of outdoor options. All How about right. that? That's safer, right? Sure. For example, not far from us is Lincoln Park, one of the city's many idyllic outdoor spaces.
3: Idyllic to whom?
2: In one of its more <laughs> affluent neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You and I have been there often. There's a conservatory, there's a nature museum, there's a local zoo, there's baseball diamonds... A beautiful lily pond where you and I briefly <laughs> considered having our wedding. Sure. However, did you know that that land was originally called Cemetery Park?
3: I did not know that.
2: Okay. And was the main site Chicago used to bury its dead for the first half of the 19th century.
3: So they moved the tombstones but not the bodies? <laughs> this is exactly, Are we in a this is exactly
2: where we're going with this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in the 1850s, health officials worried that the cemetery was too close to the lake and decided to move it. Whether we believe that story or whether they just wanted that prime real estate for Mm -hmm. what it has become since then, I don't know about that. But yes, that's sort of exactly what happened. The estimates are that there were 35,000 bodies buried there once and records account for 23,000 of them being moved meaning as many as 12,000 unmarked graves are still there below Lincoln Park
3: and poisoning our water. <laughs>
2: <laughs> poisoning our water and possibly disturbing the paranormal atmosphere. Okay. When they dug the foundation for the new barn in the Lincoln Park Zoo in 1962, they found a coffin. And getting no other instructions from officials, they simply poured the concrete and built the Cuz that's what you do. On top yeah, of it. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. In 1998, which is not that long ago, building a new parking garage for the Chicago History Museum in Lincoln Park, they found 81 skeletons. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff there.
3: So that, I think, explains... I feel like every time we've gone to Lincoln Park Zoo, we never see the animals. No, You're they're sort of, always
2: they're always huddling they're inside. They're
3: always. I think they they know something they that we they knew. The they were just like this. We don't we don't want to be here. <laughs> like you shouldn't be here. None of us are supposed to be here. We're gonna stay inside. Okay, and that explains that.
2: So this may also explain why Ursula Bielski, who's a parapsychologist who founded the Chicago Hauntings Ghost Tour. Calls Lincoln Park, without a doubt, the most active site I've investigated. Mm. So apparently there's a lot of shit going on at Lincoln Park. So I thought maybe Halloween night, maybe around midnight, you and I could go out to Lincoln Park, walk around and, you know, see if we can find some restless spirits who are lingering in their unmarked graves.
3: That's not really something I'm interested in doing. Why not? Because it's not my business. (laughs) It's just not, I don't, that's okay. I don't, like, leave that to the folks in Lincoln Park. Leave that to the gentrifiers in Lincoln Park. Have have fun with that. I'm not going to participate in that at all. You would think they would have showed up in some wedding photos though, or something. Like we would have gotten something. People
2: do stage a lot of wedding yeah. photos there. Like, yeah. Can we get a
3: few, you know, blurred faces or some creepy things? that could have had a lot of fun on that site. <laughs> as a ghost.
2: Okay, so here's another idea. This one's actually just a few blocks from us. Okay. Uh, in Graceland Cemetery, which is about a five-minute walk south from us, mm-hmm. there is a grave marked with the name Inez Clark, 1873 to 1880. So Inez was six years old. Mm-hmm. The legend is that she was a little girl who was struck and killed by lightning. The grave has a statue of a little girl with a parasol. The fact... <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. Sorry. <laughs>
3: Standing outside with a lightning rod. Okay, go ahead.
2: (laughs) The statue is encased in glass. It's got one of those glass boxes Mm -hmm. around it to protect it from the elements. And apparently several cemetery workers have attested to the fact that on stormy nights, the statue disappears and then reappears in the morning or when the storm has passed. Mm -hmm. I guess she's afraid of thunderstorms and she disappears. Yeah. Or she goes out to play in the... I mean, maybe she died because she liked to play in the rain. We don't know. We don't know the whole story. But basically... Oh, so
3: she leaves the glass to go play in the storm. Right. Possibly. But something,
2: whatever happens, that statue has a tendency to disappear Mm -hmm. and then reappear. Mm -hmm. Now, an interesting twist on this is apparently cemetery records have no child named Inez Clark listed as being buried in that cemetery. What they have for that plot is a boy, a little boy named Amos Briggs being buried there. Okay. So maybe it's really the angry ghost of the boy who's pissed off that he doesn't even have the right statue to honor. I don't know. There's something something weird going on there. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I should go get to the bottom of it. Well, I think no, I
3: mean, one, it the just... next
2: thunderstorm that rolls through... It's complicated. We should go there. Uh, the cemetery's not open at night. We'd have to climb the wall, but I think I can, I can boost you over it.
3: And who's going to boost you?
2: We won't worry about that part. I think I think. We,
3: I think if anybody's going in there to investigate, it will be you. Well,
2: you can't boost me over the wall.
3: Well, we'll figure something else out. I'm not going in there. Right. So We'll take a ladder. Fine. Okay. You'll still be going in there alone. <laughs> and <laughs> I will stay safely outside the cemetery. Because again, not my business. If she disappears and comes back, if she, you know, twirls her parasol, that's okay. I don't even want to know about it. I don't need to see it. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> People don't know. You invite those types of things into your life. And I'm not, I'm very clear about not inviting those things into my life.
2: We have discussed before on this podcast that you, and really your entire family, yes. believe in ghosts. Absolutely. Yes. And you. Everyone
3: else has seen them except right. for me.
2: You, you describe yourself as ghost blind. Yes. So it's not that you don't believe in ghosts. You just think right. for some reason you they yourself don't talk can't to see them. Yes. Right? They, they don't, they don't right. like you. <laughs> the ghosts don't like. They don't find you.
3: They don't. Well, and it's they, important to. You're,
2: you're not approachable. To apparently the not. Apparently I like
3: am um, bereft.
2: Off putting. Somehow. Somebody, which um, I, I get.
3: I mean, so the ghosts are all family. So it's not like my family sees random ghosts. <laughs> These are all people that have passed on from our family. And I think my family knows me well enough to know I don't want to see you after. No. <laughs> Do not come to me <laughs> in any way because I will freak the fuck out. I don't need to see you, so it
2: is. So you think it's consideration? You think I think it might be consideration. Nice- I think
3: they know like Nikia's really? not for the bullshit, and she doesn't want to. Yeah. You know, for good or for ill.
2: If I if I turn up to see Nikia, it's not mm-hmm. going to be comforting. No, it's she's going gonna to lose. Her give shit. her a full on She may
3: arrest. have a heart attack. Exactly. Yes. Okay.
2: Well, that is very thoughtful. So I, them,
3: yeah. Them. No, I appreciate it. So. I get secondhand ghost stories, and I'm fine with that. Okay. I pass along messages. Tell her I said hi. <laughs> all
2: right, there's. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Chicago, and there are about 17 different ghost tours you can take. So we can't possibly go through all of it. But here's mm-hmm. here's a few others that I thought were were fun. There is Hall House. The famous mm. uh, Jane so- Adams. social reformer and peace activist Jane Addams founded this settlement house for poor immigrant women. Mm-hmm. I think the original building itself is now a museum, but she herself spoke of the, the building being haunted and of hearing the footsteps of the ghost of, I think, the former owner's wife or something mm-hmm. was in that house. However, the more interesting story about Hull House is that there's an urban legend about a devil baby born to one of the women who was staying there.
3: A devil baby.
2: Yes. Literally. Scales, horns, hooves. The story is, and again, there's variations on this story, Mm -hmm. but basically they all include a, you know, brutish, ungodly husband... (laughs) who made some comment to the effect of, I'd rather have the devil in this house than another baby or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mm -hmm. this baby was born with scales and hooves and horns. The baby apparently started to speak in a profane manner the moment (laughs) it was born. And they ended up locking this thing in the attic. This is the story. Okay. And this story was so pervasive that people would call up, Hull House and show up at Hull House demanding to see this child. Why would you want to see a devil baby? Uh, in 1916, Jane Addams herself wrote a long piece for The Atlantic exploring this phenomenon. And she said, Because the Devil Baby embodied an undeserved wrong to a poor mother, whose tender child had been claimed by the forces of evil, his merely reputed presence had power to attract to Hull House hundreds of women who had been humbled and disgraced by their children. And she writes about the phenomenon as a sort of manifestation of poverty, grief, and superstition. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think she was protesting too much, and the most obvious explanation is that they had a devil baby locked in their attic.
3: Well, they absolutely did not have a devil baby locked in their attics. Because, one, does a locked door stop the devil?
2: Well, it's a baby devil.
3: But still, I mean, it's... I feel like Damien was pretty powerful (laughs) from the get-go. At the very least, you know, they'd have a dog under their control or something. So, I'm sorry, mothers would come to see the devil baby to sort of feel better about their own shitty kids? Is that...
2: That's what I was... That was her theory, yes, I think. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You don't think that would be... That, that wouldn't be comforting to you.
3: <laughs> You're still stuck with your shitty kid. You can't. I mean, so I don't know how the devil baby helps you feel better about that. And also, it was not a devil baby. It was <laughs> likely some sort Why of. Why do you? That was not a devil. It was like You just some, talked about
2: how you believe in ghosts and all this stuff. I do, stuff. but I do What's not the think that, that and a, a woman devil baby?
3: birthed a devil baby. <laughs> I, okay, so, okay, if we're going to take this seriously. I do not think the devil would be born looking like what we would think the devil would be born <laughs> looking like. The devil is going to be born in an attractive form. It's going to be a blonde, blue-eyed Gerber kid that everybody's going to be in love with and be enchanted by. And then they're going to, you know, rise to power. Like, the, they're not going to come out looking like a cartoon devil. They're not, the devil's too, so like, you're not going to tip your hand
2: in that way. They just locked you in. A... Genes are very powerful. You don't know what you're going to get. No.
3: But the whole, like the devil, and the devil doesn't, okay. See, now we're having a ridiculous conversation. The devil doesn't look like the devil. Oh, it's
2: our first one ever. The
3: devil was a fallen angel. He looked like an angel. He didn't uh, look oh, like okay. horned, scaly, who you, you know this? Personally, yes.
2: <laughs> you've, seen, you've seen the devil?
3: I've watched many a terrible film with representations of the devil, including, what's the one that I like that you hate? Um...
2: You gotta narrow that down for me.
3: The one with um
2: mask. Eric Stoltz. Yes,
3: Stoltz. Yes, with Stoltz, and then it's oh, um, uh, is that
2: the prophecy? The or prophecy. Something like that? Yes. Okay. And
3: it is um Vigo Mortensen, I think. <sighs> yeah. Plays the devil. So your kid's gonna come out looking like Vigo Mortensen, like Mortensen with like cheekbones and Nordic and amazing, and you're gonna love it, and it's gonna take over the world because it can do that because it looks like someone that everybody is gonna want to love and listen to and follow, not like a goat. So (laughs) that was obviously a child with some physical (laughs) deformities that they then locked in a fucking attic. According
2: to Jane Adams, it wasn't anything. There was never. (laughs) She doesn't even know where how this got started. Okay. I wanted to go look for the devil baby, but apparently we're not We're not looking that for the devil baby because
3: that's not, because that you know what that is? That's sad. Because what is that? That's a baby who was born in obviously abject poverty and all kinds of <laughs> shit and like there was genetic deformity. So, and that's just a sad story. That's not a funny well, story. Well,
2: they're all sad. This is what, the more I look into all these alleged hauntings and paranormal activities, they're all just places where horrible things happened. Well, yes. Take our next example. Mm-hmm. In what is now called the Nederlander Theater. For most of our time in Chicago, it was called the Oriental Theater. Oh, okay. Downtown. Yes. Okay. Um, you and I saw the Motown musical there
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
2: several years ago. Originally, it was the Iroquois Theater.
3: Oh, see, yeah.
4: No.
2: <laughs> so we have two kind of problematically racist mm-hmm. names in a row. Mm-hmm. In December 1903. There was a fire in the Iroquois Theater, which was supposed to be fireproof. It was kind of a Titanic situation, is that they bragged about how the theater was fireproof, and then there was a terrible fire there that killed 600 people, hmm. 200 and some odd of whom were children. Um, that is about twice as many people who died in the entire Chicago fire, and they died within about 15 minutes trying to escape the packed Iroquois Theater during a performance. Hmm. There was one fire escape that led to the... The alley behind the theater, the fire escape was apparently too frozen to actually be lowered, so it basically just became this fountain of death of people falling from the building into a pile in the alley below. Apparently that alley is now known as the Alley of Death or Death Alley. Creative. Apparently. (laughs) Descriptive. Mm -hmm. The fire did lead to nationwide reform about fire safety. It's usually how that happens. But also this is supposed to be another paranormal hotspot behind this theater, where people have reported hearing voices, hearing footsteps, the disembodied voices of crying children, and one woman who reported passing through the alley and feeling a small child take her hand. What was the show? The show, interestingly, and this is going to come up in our discussion of Rebecca, it was a production of Bluebeard. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Weird coincidence. All right. Okay, so again, I thought we could go check out that.
3: In general, I don't like to hang out in alleys, particularly long enough for a ghost child to grab my hand. So I'm probably gonna pass on that one as well.
2: well these ghost children might need your help.
3: I don't care, and it's also crowded over there all the time. And
2: <laughs> well, it's probably not in the alley,
3: beep, but it's just it's a whole like I have to. I don't like that area really. It's very touristy. <laughs> so i just. Not
2: we gonna... we don't like to go into the loop if we can help it anyway, do we? <laughs>
3: So I'm, I'm going to pass on that one just because I don't feel like going in that area very much.
2: Okay. All right. New idea. Okay. If we want a romantic getaway without leaving town, mm-hmm. a staycation, if you will, there are several hotels we can check into mm. in town. Mm -hmm. Uh, The historic Drake Hotel downtown apparently has a number of different ghosts. And reportedly, I don't know where these reports come from, but reportedly even closes off areas of the hotel when paranormal activity is at a peak.
3: They have a calendar?
2: (laughs) Or maybe like a thermostat or something. There's a ghost season?
3: (laughs) The ghosts are very active in December. We're going to close that part off.
2: There's a woman in red, who is apparently the ghost of a woman who jumped from the 10th floor on New Year's Eve in 1920. I've heard that story, yes. After catching her husband with another woman. Yes. Uh, there is also, apparently, competing a woman in black, who was a real woman. In 1944, socialite Adele Bourne-Williams and her daughter discovered a gray-haired woman in a black fur coat hiding in the bathroom of their suite. The woman in black shot Williams to death, escaped, and was never caught or identified. So that... That part is fact. Okay. Now, people have reported seeing the woman in black, supposedly, mm-hmm. which is weird, because then that's the murderer, not the woman who was killed. Right. That's haunt- that's, that's an unusual situation. Sure. I don't know why the, the killer would mm-hmm. hang around as a mm-hmm. ghost rather than the killee. That's mm-hmm. a, that sort of flips the usual formula. What do you think about that?
3: I don't. Um, because... The Drake is out of my price range, so I don't have to concern myself with running into any of these people ever, because I don't... Well, I
2: think for a special occasion, we could... No,
3: I... We could spring
2: for a night at the Drake.
3: I'm out of the tax bracket for those ghosts.
2: (laughs) Can't afford to hobnob with those ghosts.
3: (laughs) They're too high class for me, darling.
2: Okay. The Congress Plaza Hotel, however, mm-hmm. takes the cake for a haunted Chicago honeymoon. There have been just apparently a huge number of suicides over the years. People who hang themselves, jump from windows, or threw themselves down elevator shafts. It's a fucked way to go. In this hotel. Al Capone's ghost is supposed to be there, hanging around his old suite on the eighth floor.
3: I thought Capone was at the Green Mill.
2: Yeah, I th- see, I think this is, this is where we cross over into the spiritual tourism industry. <laughs> Okay. There's a ghost called Peg Leg Johnny, who apparently was a homeless man who was murdered in the alley behind the hotel. There's a ghost of a little boy whose mother apparently threw herself and her two children from a window. There are supposed to be rooms where the pictures spontaneously rotate, rooms with ghostly suicides in the bathtub. And at least one room where an exorcism was held. All right. One site I found claimed that in 1989, two Marines who were staying in the hotel fled their room and ran through the lobby in their underwear, claiming that a towering black figure had emerged from the closet in their suite. Uh, And then there's one room, room 441, which is supposed to be the most haunted room in America. And reportedly generates a lot of calls to the front desk from people who stay there. That was the room that supposedly inspired the Stephen King short story 1408, which was made into a disappointing movie with John Cusack. <laughs> so we can actually book that room, if you like.
3: Why would we do that? Um, Why would they even still allow that room to be booked?
2: I imagine they probably charge more for that room with the reputation <laughs> it has. Now there are some paranormal authorities who claim that that is not the real room 441, that the real room 441 has been bricked over, and papered <laughs> off because it was so I imagine that's unspeakably an evil risk at that the very least. risk letting anyone stay there. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I thought it would be nice to go to go spend a night there and see what happens.
3: I'm going to pass on I that one as That would be a romantic well, getaway for I us. I don't... We have different definitions of romance, so I'm also going to say a no to that one <laughs> for a number of reasons. I also don't know what like the bed bug situation there is at Congress, so I'm, I'm just going to...
2: Okay, now you're just libeling a Chicago I, um, business on well, our behalf. I'm saying
3: I would need to with no r- evidence. research it.
2: You don't have any I would need to look into... They have, we have reason to think they have ghosts. We don't have any reason to think they have bed bugs. I'm going to need you to retract that before we get sued. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I just said I would need to look into the status of their bed bug situation, and that's with any hotel. I, that's I need. To, I was do some very particular. Which reasons. one of those would
2: you be more afraid of?
3: I mean, the bed bugs. If, if if
2: they said to you, okay, we got two rooms left. One of them has ghosts, mm-hmm. and one of them has bed bugs.
3: Well, the bed bugs would come back with us, and we'd right. have we got to like, take the ghost room, right? Pe- like take all of our shit and yeah. get rid of it. And so, no, I, I can't handle bed bugs. <laughs>
2: Have you ever been in any place that you thought was haunted or were told was haunted?
3: Think so. I mean, quite frankly, this entire country is a burial ground, so <laughs> <laughs> I imagine I have been and just it's didn't just all, didn't know the story. It's just all haunted. So yeah, I'm I'm sure I have been, but I don't I have never experienced anything paranormal to my knowledge yet. Yet.
2: Okay. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Do you want to go on any of these ghost tours? I mean, we've done the architecture tour like 19 times. We've done the architecture tour. Every time out. someone comes to town, we have to take yeah. that damn architecture tour.
4: <laughs> it's a good tour.
2: So I think we should start, you know, phasing that out uh-huh. and phasing the ghost tours in. What do you think?
3: Uh, I'm going to say a no... To that, again, I just, I do not have that curiosity. I don't need to know. I don't need to see that it's real. I You tell me that there's a ghost there. I will believe you that there's a ghost there. What will I do? Stay the fuck out of there. So I don't need to pay what will probably be, what, like 40 bucks? Yeah,
2: I think they make a pretty, yeah. pretty good change <laughs> on <to, during>
3: this. <laughs> to ride on a bus <laughs> with strangers around random buildings in Chicago to not see a ghost, basically. Because I don't imagine they're showing up on cue for these tours. <laughs> So, it's basically like those um, paranormal TV shows with the, like, <laughs> yeah. infrared lighting uh, or whatever. And they're like, did you hear that? It's like, it's your coat making a lot of noise. <laughs> the fucking windbreaker you're wearing. It's not the hush sounds of, like, a murdered
2: child. You are this curious mixture of, you know, completely believing in it oh, and then it. being completely cynical at the same time.
3: W well, 'cause because it's... <sighs> It's also just out of respect for the ghosts, right? They die. Don't commercialize them. Well, so yes, there's one, it's exploitative. But then two... <laughs> Like, Peg Leg John or whatever. That wasn't that man's name. And now he's forever known as Peg Leg John in your fucking brochure. That's not cool. But then two, they died. They got away from us. Why? I don't want to bother them with my corporal bullshit. Like, just leave them alone. Let them be. It's the only reason we have horror films is because we go fucking with them in their spaces. So just don't do that. Respect the fucking veil, man. Like, just... <laughs> no. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again.
5: It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive. And for a while, I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me.
2: Mikia, you're almost certainly going to gripe about how long this movie is. Hmm. It's about two hours, ten minutes. Too long. Which is, what, 40 minutes longer than you generally like to put up with? So let's jump into the movie this week. What, if anything, do you know about Rebecca?
3: I know absolutely nothing about Rebecca.
2: Nothing? Nothing. Never heard of it?
3: No. Okay.
2: Uh, So it's directed by Alfred Hitchcock, who you generally like, I think.
3: As a person or?
2: Well, as a... Filmmaker, <laughs> Did you know him as a person? Yes, we were intimately involved.
3: No, okay. uh, yes. For one
2: thing, you're a lot older than you've led me to believe.
3: Generally, I enjoy Hitchcock films.
2: Uh, you and I talked about Hitchcock a little bit last year when we did Rope. Yeah. I don't know if you have it. Mm-hmm. any memory of Rope. I do. Okay. Do you have a favorite Hitchcock movie?
3: Um, Either Vertigo or Rear Window. Well, The Birds. Rear Window. I'm going to go with Rear you're Window. You're going to
2: go with Rear Window. Yes. Okay. Because of Grace Kelly's clothes? Pretty much. so Yeah.
3: Puts it over the
2: top, yeah. Okay, so I'll begin by saying that I wouldn't necessarily describe Rebecca as a horror movie. Uh, I think it's commonly referred to as more of a psychological thriller, but even that might seem like an exaggeration to you after we watch it. We'll see what you think. It is, however, spooky and suspenseful and saturated with sort of an oppressive, menacing atmosphere that I think makes it an excellent choice for a dark and stormy night. What it is really is a gothic romance, and we talked a little bit last week about how The Devil's Backbone was sort of a conscious riff on that sort of story, Mm -hmm. and this is more the purer form of the genre. Hitchcock described it as a Bronte sort of thing, meaning that, you know, even though it was set in what was at the time, contemporary time, it was sort of like Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or one of those stories. You know, there's a pure of heart damsel, there's a She's in love with a volatile, slightly tyrannical man. There's a mysterious old mansion full of danger and secrets and, you know, a general atmosphere of doom and gloom. These are the elements that are involved in this sort of story. But I'll defend it as a good choice for Halloween. You and I once discussed our favorite cinematic ghost stories. I think it was the episode we did on The Innocents. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I said that Rebecca was one of my favorite ghost stories, despite or maybe because of the fact that it's a ghost story without a ghost. Mm. It's the story of a meek and timid young woman who marries a rich older man, moves into his huge mansion, and is haunted in every way but literally by the ghost of his first wife, Mm. Rebecca.
4: Mm Mm-hmm
2: based on Daphne du Maurier's 1938 novel of the same name, which is one of my all-time favorite reads. It's hard to argue that the book is underappreciated. It was a bestseller. It's never been out of print. It's been translated into a couple of dozen languages. And still, apparently, more than 80 years after its publication, the paperback still sells about 4,000 copies a month. It won the National Book Award in 1938, and in 2017, it was voted the UK's favorite novel of the past 225 years in a poll by bookseller W.H. Smith. W.H. Smith had been around for 225 years, so that's where that number comes from. But for all of that, I think the book is underappreciated. It was critically more or less dismissed when it came out. And though I think its reputation has grown over the decades, I think it still struggles against the perception that it's just sort of a melodramatic romance or a gothic page-turner. I think it's a much better-crafted book than that. It's a masterclass of narration, where the heroine's changing emotional state is reflected in, you know, every word Mm -hmm. in the book. So I think it's just an excellent example of capturing consciousness in a novel. I mean, seriously, if I were teaching a literature class or... particularly a writing class, this would be one of the first books I would assign.
4: Hmm.
2: So if people have never read the book, I highly recommend it. It's brilliantly done. I also think, and we'll see if you agree after we watch the movie, it's a way more interesting story in terms of its sexual politics than it appears to be at first glance. Rebecca has been adapted several times, of which this is the first and best known. And one reason we're watching it now is that Ben Wheatley's new version, starring Lily James and Army Hammer, premieres in a couple of weeks on Netflix. I've seen the trailer. I'm dubious, but we'll see how that goes. There have been half a dozen TV adaptations. It's been turned into radio dramas, stage plays, a stage musical, and an opera. All right, very briefly, let's talk about the background on this production. Producer David O. Selznick, who was then working on one of your personal favorites, Gone with the Wind, bought the rights to the novel while it was still on the bestseller list. And to direct it, he recruited Alfred Hitchcock, who at that point had been working successfully in England for nearly 20 years. Uh, So Rebecca was Hitchcock's first Hollywood movie, his first American movie. So Selznick gets credit for bringing Hitchcock to America, which is where he made most of what we think of as his masterpieces. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the history of cinema for the film nerds out there. I think one of the interesting things about this movie is that it's considered a turning point in the power dynamics of Hollywood. There's a whole documentary about that hitchcock selznick relationship that talks about how, you know, this was the height of the studio system. For the most part, producers ran the show. Directors were pretty much interchangeable. Directors were not important. Directors Mm -hmm. were not stars. Mm
3: -hmm. They were ballast.
2: Basically, they were ballast. (laughs) I mean, you look at Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind had three different directors work on it. He kept firing them. And if you look at the poster for that movie, it's David O. Selznick's production of Mm -hmm. Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. And then Victor Fleming, who ended up with the directing credit, is like tiny print at the bottom. The director was not important. And I think Hitchcock is one of the people that changed that. He was a known commodity in England. He was used to running the show. The, The British film industry was different. Um, and his coming into the Hollywood system sort of changed the dynamics a little bit. And I think Hitchcock was very canny about developing his own personal brand. I mean, he did, he did those famous cameos in his own movies. Mm-hmm. He often was in the trailers for his movies. He, did, he filmed little introductions for his movies that played in theaters before them. And then later, when he hosted the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show on television, he sort of became the first recognizable director, probably the only director most Americans could name on site. Mm -hmm. He and Selznick fought a lot on the making of this movie, I think to the benefit of the movie, because part of what Hitchcock wanted to do with it would not have been good. Hitchcock wanted to put more humor in it. He wanted to put more action in it. I'm not sure how that would have worked. And Selznick basically told him, look, we bought the book. We're going to make the Mm book. That's what we want to do. Anyway, we can talk about that more later, but I think it works. I think what we got is as close as was possible to the novel within the confines of the Hollywood system. And that includes the, which we've talked about several times, the Hays Code. Right. I'm not going to give any plot details away, but after we watched the movie, there were certain changes that had to be made from the book for the censors to approve it. But I think it's a great movie, and I definitely think it's a movie that my my opinion of it has not changed, but the way I read it has definitely changed from the first time I saw it when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Where I took it, I think, much more face value, and now, like I said, I think, it's, I think it's a much more complex story than that. Okay, none of that means that you are going to like this movie, of course. Um, you actually asked me, before we did this, do you think I'm going to like this movie? I have no idea. My guess is you'll like the movie you'll get frustrated with the characters
4: okay
2: uh but that's just a guess we you know you and i've been doing this for a long time now and i still can never predict whether you're going to like something or not you you have any idea
3: no i have no idea
2: okay all right well let's go find out
1: announcing the return of the most glamorous motion picture ever made. David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock bring you the Grand Slam Prize winner that made motion picture history. Winner of the Academy Award, voted by America's critics as the best picture of the year. And now, as a result of a national poll, winning new honors, as audiences throughout the country vote to see it again. The Selznick Studios' successor to Gone with the Wind, Rebecca. ...brought to the screen with all the warmth and emotion... ...that made millions of readers acclaim Daphne du Maurier's bestseller... ...as the most exciting love story of our time. The fascinating Max de Winter lives on the screen in the person of Laurence Olivier.
0: Why? It's Max de Winter.
1: How do you do? The shy, unsophisticated young girl who dared to follow in the footsteps of the beautiful Rebecca... ...is portrayed by lovely Joan Fontaine.
5: How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca.
1: What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? It's
5: not only in this room, it's in all the rooms in the house. You can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living?
0: Tell me, is Mrs. Van Hopper a friend of yours or just a relation?
5: No, she's my employer. I'm what is known as a paid companion. I didn't
1: know companionship could be bought. There is mystery, love, and laughter in Rebecca. The motion picture still unsurpassed for suspenseful romance.
2: And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Rebecca. Nakia Rebecca was nominated for 11 Oscars, including Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, Supporting Actress, Cinematography, Screenplay, Art Direction, Film Editing, Score, and Visual Effects. It won for George Barnes' Cinematography, and it won Best Picture. The second win in a row for Selznick, after Gone with the Wind the previous year, and the only win ever for a Hitchcock movie. Uh, Hitchcock was nominated for Best Director, he didn't win, and in fact, Hitchcock never won a competitive Oscar, though he was nominated five times, which kind of proves that even back then the Oscars were bullshit. The film was well-received. Frank Nugent, writing in the New York Times, called it an altogether brilliant film, haunting, suspenseful, handsome, and handsomely played. But what did you think of it?
3: Um... It was fine.
2: Oh, dear.
3: I didn't love it.
2: You didn't love it?
3: No. I thought it was really well done, and I thought Mrs. Danvers was wonderful.
2: <laughs> uh,
3: but, yeah, it's... De- it, it that's wouldn't- a word that's never been used <laughs> to apply this. <laughs> but it wouldn't be one of my favorite Hitchcocks. Really?
2: No. Oh, I love this movie. Okay, well, let's maybe start with challenging my premise here. Is this a Halloween movie?
3: Hmm. I don't, I mean, it's a thriller, a psychological thriller. Mm. I don't think that that is Halloween specific. Sure, you can watch it during Halloween. There is, I guess, you know, a ghost that's not really a ghost Mm -hmm. uh, story, but I don't, I don't know that it's a, I don't know that I would qualify it as a
2: Halloween movie. I think parts of it are scary as hell. What parts? And it's a different kind of scary. It's a, well, I mean, Mrs. Danvers is amazing. one of the scariest people ever captured on celluloid, I think. But I think just the tension of Mm -hmm. that... I mean, I know you found this movie long. Yes. And I do think that middle section at Manderley is the heart of the movie. Mm -hmm. I think the first section in Monte Carlo is not as good, and I think the last sort of trial section of the movie is not as good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think those middle scenes set at Manderley are tense as hell. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Well,
3: tense is not scary, though. Well, I
4: think there's a general
2: air of menace to everything. Mm -hmm. And I think the more you relate to that main character, I think the more you feel that.
3: And so maybe that's where I... Don't jive with this film because she actually just annoyed the shit See, out of me. I,
2: I predicted that's what was going to happen.
3: <laughs> I, was, I just wanted is her to your, nut up and just So maybe that's why I did not. I, I didn't identify with the second Mrs. De Winter because she just. <laughs> I was like, you need to grow some balls.
2: And it is tricky to talk about her, of course, because she has no first name. Right, that's true in the book too. This is. How much she is overshadowed by Rebecca is that mm-hmm. she doesn't even have her own name.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, in the script, I believe she was listed as I. Okay, how do you want to tackle this? Let's. I. I don't think we want to go scene by scene, but maybe we can start by just talking about that first section. That this is the courtship. This is the love story. Except it's not a love story <laughs> at all. What do you mean?
3: In that there is no passion or love between the two main characters, really. That's at all effectively communicated on screen. I really don't understand. It just seems to be a relationship of, like, he needed a child bride, basically. <laughs> and so he picked the one that was sort of around. And she went with it because she doesn't really have an identity of her own. So, sure, that's
2: romantic. That's a little harsh.
3: I, it's a lot true, though. <laughs> She needed, she was looking for a life and he was willing to offer her one. And despite her constant, desperate assertions that she was deeply in love with him, I just don't see how that was possible.
2: He's Here's rich, the thing. he's handsome. Okay, he's- sure. Okay.
3: Rich, handsome. I'll- Charming when he wants to be. Here's the thing. If she had been that chick, if she was the chick that was like, <laughs> Oh, he's rich and handsome, and his wife died, and so he's super sad and depressed. And I'm gonna play this role I'm of like snatch him up the naive and- <laughs> ingenue that he can mold into whatever he wants to mold. And then I'll get into this house, fire that bitch, and make this my life. Then perf- Then I would have been all on board. Which
2: is what her employer, Mrs. Van Hopper, thought that she was accuses doing. Accuses her of doing. She says, "Oh, I have to give you credit yeah. for a fast worker."
3: But she she's not.
2: She's just <laughs> no. She was actually in love with this person, apparently. Uh, You want to talk about Mrs. Van Hopper at all?
3: What is She's new money, just tacky, and, you know, lacks class, and doesn't recognize when people hate her. So, not really a whole lot to say.
2: I read somewhere that there were audible gasps in the auditorium on screenings of this when she puts her cigarette out in the cold cream. (laughs) (laughs) That was just such a tacky thing to do. Yeah, she's awful. Yeah, she's terrible. so you can't really blame.
3: No, again,
2: the main character as a way for out, wanting to get away from it was from a her. good choice, mm-hmm.
3: but that wasn't what this was. She she genuinely was apparently enraptured by this man who showed absolutely no emotion and only treated her like a child, basically, <laughs> and whose proposal involved calling her a little fool. So,
0: <laughs> which would you prefer, New York or Mandalay?
5: Oh, please don't joke about it. Mrs. Van Hopper's waiting, and I'd better say goodbye now.
0: I repeat what I said. Either you go to America with Mrs. Van Hopper, or you come home to Mandalay with me.
3: You mean you want a secretary or something?
0: I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool.
3: So, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't...
2: You, you were not caught up in the romance. I was not caught up in the romance. Of this.
0: I also
3: have a hard time with films that ask me to find ridiculously beautiful women as, like, mousy or somehow plain or
2: yeah, awkward. Yeah, like, this is a problem. That is a
3: striking woman. <laughs>
2: Joan Fontaine was gorgeous. In her
3: little cardigan sets. This is the problem with the new one, too. Lily James (laughs) is
2: playing that part in the new movie. And it's like, you were just. It's
3: like, oh, you put glasses on Angelina Jolie and she's (laughs) plain now. No, it's Angelina Jolie in glasses.
2: I do think Joan Fontaine is very good in this movie, though.
3: I think she plays it well. She plays the sort of awkward, the way that she. The physicality of it. Her posture. And
2: this is something else Frank Nugent said in his review. He specifically called out her posture. He said, possibly it's unethical to criticize performance anatomically. Still, we insist Miss Fontaine has the most expressive spine and shoulders we've bothered to notice this season. And she, I mean, I think she knows she's too attractive for this part, and she plays it hunched over. Her mm-hmm. shoulders are slumpy, and he's right about her spine. There are places where we see like a shiver go up her spine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of an amazing performance. I Still, think. Still, it's
3: just a gorgeous woman with scoliosis. Like it's just <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't play. Um, but no, she does her best to be the type of character that that character is supposed mm-hmm. to be. But again, it just it's another thing that removes me from being able to identify with her because. Because the believable, I'm just like, are we serious here? No.
2: Well, but doesn't that make it more believable that he would be attracted to her?
3: But he does not in any way demonstrate being attracted to her throughout that film. <laughs> There's no the most sexual tension in this film is between the second Mrs. De, uh DeWinters <laughs> and Mrs. Danvers. Okay, we're
2: we are definitely gonna. That's
3: get the to couple that. I want to see. That's the
2: heart of this movie right here. Where that's <laughs> what we really need to talk about. But let's get through this part first. Okay, I actually looked it up after watching it this time. And again, I think it's the kind of thing that... I first saw this movie when I was a kid. And then watching it again, I'm like, is there really an age difference here? And there isn't much of one. Olivier is like 10 years older than Joan Fontaine was mm-hmm. when they made this movie.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I think he, the character is supposed to be maybe 20 yeah, years he's
4: supposed
3: to
2: be older yeah. than her. But what, what did you think of Olivier?
3: So this was my first... Well, at least the first one that I was aware of because I think I looked him up... And found out that he was
2: um, Zeus. He was Zeus, Zeus and Clash of the
3: the Titans. And I don't remember (laughs) that was a
2: paycheck job for him late in life. Um,
3: So my first Olivier experience. Sure.
2: What does "sure" mean?
3: I, I mean, he's talked about as one of those sort of rarefied actors. It's oh, just this is,
2: yeah, you have to see, you know, his Hamlet or whatever, right. That's what but.
3: I'm saying. So I'm saying I am not obviously I have not seen his most of his work. So this was just sort of he was very aristocratic and brooding and all like so. so yeah, I mean, but it Hot. was no, not to me. <laughs> No. Okay. I, he wore this tux that I really liked so <laughs> in the costume party. Um. So I just wanted to wear that myself. I didn't really care about him in it. But yeah. So okay. I did not find him hot. No.
2: All right. Okay. So I don't know that there's much more to say about that That opening, the Monte Carlo scene. Mm-hmm. Um, now we get to Manderly. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Manderly. It's
3: a big ass house. Too big for anyone, quite frankly. Manderly is a house with its own sort of story and myth, obviously, its own mystique. And from the moment that she enters, it is very clear that she's out of place.
2: Yeah. Her being overwhelmed with this starts before she even gets there.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's the last thing Mrs. Van Hopper says to her, too, is that I can't really see you playing that role. Right. I can't really see you being mistress of Manderly. Yeah. And then they get there in a rainstorm, and she comes in looking like a drowned rat. And and, and this is where we meet Mrs. Danvers, played by Judith Anderson, mm-hmm. who apparently is your favorite person in the movie. She is.
3: Yes. Okay. Yes. Because she's a woman about her business. She doesn't have time for the... Like, okay. Um. Yeah, she... I just love her. Like, she has no... <laughs> There's no... <laughs> It's very clear that she had a very special relationship with the first Mrs. De Winter and has no interest in making this sort of interloper feel (laughs) at all welcome. If there's anything you want done, madam, you have only to tell me.
5: I suppose you've been at Manderley for many years, longer than anyone else. Not so long as Strith. He was here when the old gentleman was living, when Mr. De Winter was a boy. I see, and you didn't come till after that? I came here when the first Mrs. DeWinter was a bride.
3: And there is this sort of interesting sort of upending of what would typically be the class status in that relationship, right? Like, theoretically, the second Mrs. DeWinter is the lady of the manor. Right, and she should outrank should outrank, she should Mrs. outrank and, But Mrs. Danvers makes it pretty much clear from day one that no.
2: And Maxim says that to her yeah. at one point. He says, you act like you're the upstairs right. parlor maid. Not the lady of the house.
3: So, you know, you gotta... Re- I just have a lot of... I respect her. I just respect her.
2: <laughs> she just drips contempt. She does. She um, does. And a lot of people have talked about how, how Hitchcock uses the camera in relation to her, and that, you know, it's like she controls the camera.
4: Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. right
2: from that opening scene where she, she looks Joan Fontaine up and down, and then she looks down at the gloves, and it's like it makes her drop those gloves, yeah. <laughs> and then fumbling for them. Yeah, she's she's scary as shit is yeah. what she is. Yeah. And Max, and I think this is the class thing again, he's not even aware of it. No. And the question of why he has never fired this woman is one that I think is unanswered. Well, in because the she movie. takes care of
3: the house. And so as long as he doesn't have to actually worry about anything, right. he's not going to fire her. And even, you know, later in the film there is an issue with the staff where mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Danvers accuses one of the other staff of breaking a, you know, cherished figurine. And Max says something to the second Mrs. DeWinter to the effect of like, why are they coming to me with this? They should be talk- like, you should be handling that.
2: So it's very clear that like he, right, he says, that's your job,
3: right? He's not interested in engaging in that way. So he wouldn't necessarily know that, you know. Mrs. Danvers was way overstepping her
2: bounds. All right, well, actually, let's talk about that. So there's that's her first morning at Manderley, mm-hmm. and she basically does everything wrong. Mm-hmm. She has no idea what she's supposed to do or where she's supposed to go. She comes down, she goes into one room, and the butler says, oh, we don't light the fire in this room. Mrs. DeWinter always did her correspondence in this other room. Yeah. And so, again, just this trying to walk in the steps of this woman who actually ran this house mm-hmm. and was actually in control and glamorous and beautiful and strong. And just that house is so oppressive. I mean, the you talked about how Maxim sort of treats her like a child and mm-hmm. infantilizes her. And that house does the same thing. The doorknobs are above her head. <laughs> those doors are so huge, and she walks up to those doorknobs and has to reach up above her head to turn the doors and open the doors. The fireplaces are big enough Mm -hmm. that she can stand in them. Everything just dwarfs her. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a great shot of her in the middle of the movie sitting in a chair... And the chair, the armchair is like three times yeah. as big as a normal armchair would be. And she's just tiny in it. Uh, but yeah, and then she, so she goes into the into the morning room um, because she's told that's where Mrs. DeWinter always did her correspondence. She has no correspondence. No. She has nobody to write to. She has no social network. She, you know, she has no idea what she's supposed to do. And everything is covered with that R, mm-hmm. Rebecca's monogram. And then she knocks over that China Cupid and... Is just horrified that she's like gonna get in trouble for that. She hides the pieces and hopes no one ever notices. I mean, do you, you you don't relate to that character at all? Just that in, I feel like anyone who's ever been insecure about anything Mm -hmm. has to feel the tension in this movie that radiates from her.
3: I mean, yes, there's definitely, there are definitely spaces where I feel like I don't belong or that they weren't necessarily meant for me. Or they're very precious. And so, you know, I mean, I mean, my great grandma's living room was basically that, right? Like (laughs) you couldn't, (laughs) everything was covered in plastic and was sort of perfectly placed. And we never went in there except for Christmas because that's where the tree was. Um, Otherwise, it was like, you're, you know, you're not good enough to sit in that room with all the love in the world. So, yes, I do understand that. I guess where I start to lose a little bit of empathy there is that's her home. Like that's. She's now woman of the house, Mm. so...
2: But I don't know how you walk into that space and feel like that's your home.
3: No, that's, no, that's fair.
2: Coming from where she came from. Yeah. I mean, I just, I feel like she is such a sympathetic character just because, I mean, she's like this exposed nerve. She's Mm -hmm. just, everything is just terrifying and oppressive to her. Mm -hmm. But you, as you said, just wanted her to nut up. Pretty much. Which she does do eventually, or tries to. She tries. Very weakly,
3: yeah. She should have just fired Mrs. Danvers. She just, like, just fired that woman.
2: Okay, so it happens after the scene. There's one afternoon that sort of changes things. It's where Favelle shows up first. This is George Sanders Mm -hmm. being very George Sanders, Rebecca's cousin, quote-unquote. And then it's after that that she and Mrs. Danvers have that scene in the West Wing which is Rebecca's bedroom that's been closed off behind this door that she's never dared go in before and she finally goes in there mm-hmm. uh, let's let's talk about that scene because I think it's it gets to a lot of what is interesting to talk about with this movie
5: I didn't expect to see you Mrs. Danvers I, I noticed that a window wasn't closed and I came up to see if I could fasten it why did you say that? I closed it before I left the room you opened it yourself didn't you? You've always wanted to see this room, haven't you, madam? Why did you never ask me to show it to you? I was ready to show it to you every day. It's a lovely room, isn't it? Loveliest room you've ever seen. Everything is kept just as Mrs. De Winter liked it. Nothing has been altered since that last night. Come. I'll show you her dressing. room.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's the best scene in the film, in my opinion, and Mrs. Danvers controls the entire scene which and and does it beautifully and basically plays on all of the second Mrs. DeWinter's insecurities. And it, it's meant to be an intimidation, but it, it also somehow comes across as a little bit of a seduction mm-hmm. and hints at the fact that Mrs. Danvers was likely in love with Rebecca uh, mm-hmm. if they didn't have a, an explicit relationship. But it's... You know, Mrs. Danvers, for the whole time that we've been with her or seen her, every time we've seen her, she's been very curt and stone-faced. And it's only in this space in Rebecca's room where she there's life that comes to her. And it's almost a certain humor to it as well. Mm -hmm. But the way that she shares with the second Mrs. (laughs) DeWinter, Rebecca's personal things... And the sensuality with which she yeah. does it is is really quite.
2: But only to a point. Like, she sits Joan Fontaine down at her dressing table. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about how she would come home after parties every night and sit here. And I would brush her hair. And Mrs. Danvers picks up the brush, but does not touch her. Oh, of course not. Does not brush yeah. her hair with Rebecca's thing. Because she's not She worried. just kind of pantomimes yeah. it. She sort of waves it behind her head as if she's brushing her hair. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Um, and then she shows her the coats in the closet. And she takes that fur coat out and she rubs it against her own cheek and mm-hmm. then she rubs it against Joan Fontaine's cheek and then she shows her the underwear the lingerie mm-hmm. it it's absolutely a seduction
4: yeah, yeah.
2: a menacing yes. seduction and then she pulls out that nightgown and she's look it's so sheer you can see my hand through it so it it's incredibly sexual yeah and this was all conscious. And in fact, the, we talked about the Hayes Code, what their problems with this movie were.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Joseph Green, the head of the Production Code Administration, sent Selznick a four-page letter after reading the initial treatment for this. And said, you know, we've read, we've read the script, and I regret to inform you that the material in our judgment is definitely and specifically in violation of the Production Code. And Breen had three objections. First, as now written, it is the story of a murderer who is permitted to go off scot-free. This is, we're jumping ahead, but mm-hmm. Rebecca's death. Yeah. In the novel, Mac shot her in the heart.
3: Oh, okay.
2: It was not an accident. Okay. And I think even in the movie, we're taking his word for yeah. it, that it was an accident. And we can easily read that as he murdered her.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, his second objection was... The repeated references to the affair between Favelle and Mrs. De Winter, and the illegitimate Mm child-to-be, the alleged child-to-be. And then his third objection was the quite inescapable inferences of sex perversion, which was their code for anything related to homosexuality or lesbianism. Mm -hmm. And he said... In a follow-up letter, it will be essential that there is no suggestion whatsoever of a perverted relationship between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. If any possible hint of this creeps into this scene, we will, of course, not be able to approve the picture. Specifically, we have in mind Mrs. Danvers' description of Rebecca's physical attributes, her handling of the various garments, particularly the nightgown. Now, that being said, how the movie got approved the way it is seems to be something of a mystery. What kind of deal-making there was done with them. Because they did change the murder thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look to me like they changed anything else. Um, there were a couple of lines that they took out, including Mrs. Danvers saying something like, Rebecca hated all men. Mm-hmm. She never loved any man. Mm-hmm. She was above all that. Mrs. Danvers said they took that line out. But yeah, so the... The lesbianism question, I think, permeates this movie. And that, again, when I saw this as a kid, that never even occurred right, to me. Right, yeah. Um, but it's, it's pretty hard yeah. to avoid. And it's definitely in the book, too, more overtly, though still not completely specified. And this is where it gets interesting to talk about Daphne de Maurier, whose sexuality appears to have been, at the very least, complicated. Uh, She married a man, she had three children, and in fact she said Rebecca was inspired in part by her jealousy over finding letters that his former fiancé had written to him. Hmm. So that, you know, again, the ghost of the form of the previous love. Mm -hmm. But in her correspondence, she also sort of described her marriage as her public face and described her own sexuality as having a decidedly male energy Um, she definitely conceived very powerful obsessions over women it's generally acknowledged that she had affairs with women and there's a lot of speculation and this it gets hard to to figure out how much to say about this but there are a lot of people who look at her life and see that what she actually was was transgender Hmm. From the time of her childhood, she described herself as having a boy's mind and a boy's heart. She said her outward form was a mistake. Hmm. She described herself as being a man stuck in a woman's body, etc., etc. To the extent where she apparently as a child had an alter ego named Eric that she dressed up in boy's clothes. So again, it's hard to to say for certain but that but certainly all of that is there and I think all of that is in this movie too Mm -hmm. in the book and I don't remember I don't think it's in the movie but in the book I know Mrs. Danvers uses a lot of those same terms to talk about Rebecca as how she had a man's spirit Mm -hmm. that kind of thing Mm -hmm. she should have been born a man and you can read that as oh she was strong and powerful and aggressive etc or you can read it as more complicated than that I, I I I don't know. I think it's really interesting. And then, I think, from that, or definitely at least including that, we get to the question of... And this is, I think, how a lot of people read the novel now, at least. You know, I describe this as a ghost story without a ghost. I think you can also see it as a feminist story without the feminist character.
3: How so? That Rebecca is the feminist? That
2: Rebecca is the hero of the story. And Max is the villain. Hmm. Because this is, in a way, a retelling of the Bluebeard story, where... The woman marries the man. There's a room in the house that she's not allowed to go into. And when she finally goes in there, she finds the bodies or the heads of his previous wives. Mm -hmm. That's the Bluebeard legend. Okay. And you can see this movie as a retelling of that story. So, Max is the monster. Mm -hmm. Rebecca is the feminist hero who Max murdered to protect the patriarchy. What what do you think of that?
3: (laughs) Um... That's interesting. I mean, it's hard for me to get there. It's hard for me to sort of ascribe like a feminist identity to Rebecca when she is only a character we know through other people. Right. And so if we're believing Max's retelling of sort of, you know, how it came to be that Rebecca died, like she was not in love with him at all. She really was just interested in, it sounds like, Hmm. marrying him to, to sort of have this
2: public right? She may have married him for money. I mean, we don't know right? So how that came about.
3: But at some point she tells him, you know, he, he's telling the second Mrs. DeWinter that they were standing at that cliffside. Yeah.
0: Do you remember that cliff where you first saw me in Monte Carlo? Well, I went there with Rebecca on our honeymoon. That was when I found out about her. Four days after we were married, she stood there laughing, her black hair blowing in the wind. She told me all about herself. Everything. Things I'll never tell a living soul. I wanted to kill her. It would have been so easy. Remember the precipice? I frightened you, didn't I? You thought I was mad. Perhaps I was. Perhaps I am mad. It wouldn't make for sanity, would it? Living with the devil. I'll make a bargain with you, she said. You'd look rather foolish trying to divorce me now after four days of marriage. So I'll play the part of a devoted wife, mistress of your precious mandolin. I'll make it the most famous showplace in England, if you like. And people will visit us and envy us and say we're the luckiest, happiest couple in the country. What a grand joke it'll be. What a triumph.
3: Does that... So... And then she went about living the life she wanted to lead which meant not really respecting her marriage very much, which was obviously a choice that both of them made. Does that make her a feminist? I don't, I don't know that that makes her a feminist.
2: Well, she was certainly, from all reports, she owned her sexuality, sure. shall we say, in a mm-hmm. way that was not common for the time. Um, she was independent. She was not going to be told who she was supposed to be. She was just going to be that person. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Max went along with that, to protect the family name, to protect his image for a while, Mm -hmm. until she told him, my illegitimate child is going to inherit Manderley. Right. That was the line. And that's where it becomes this sort of, you know, he murdered her to protect the patriarchy, to protect the rights of inheritance, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, we we only hear about her really from two people who knew her well. One of them is Max and the other is Mrs. Danvers.
3: Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it depends on how we define feminism. If we define feminism as being a strong woman that sort of does what she wants to do without any regard to anyone else or how anyone else is harmed, then sure, she was a feminist.
2: Mm, I mean, we don't know that she harmed anyone except Maxim's ego.
3: But is that not... So I guess that's fine if we're saying we don't give a shit about Max. Why don't we give a shit about Max?
2: Well, because he's kind of an asshole for one thing. Okay.
3: It didn't sound like he was abusive or mean to her, from what we can tell. It right. just sounds like they weren't in love.
2: Okay, but okay, so maybe one way to get at this is to is to look at the other, to look at what Max does want, mm-hmm. which you said right from the beginning. He wants a
3: child bride. He wants Absolutely. a child
2: bride. Absolutely. He wants someone totally submissive. Yes. Um, someone he can condescend to and patronize. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm not saying I'm not trying to make the argument that he's a good person. mm Hmm. I'm just saying, I think the bar for feminism is a little bit higher than what we're we're laying out here. And I Max is absolutely has his faults. He is looking to base he's basically, you know, grooming Joan Fontaine to be the sort of quiet, unassuming, he doesn't have to worry about her type of wife. And that's his and right. And anytime
2: to she tries to assert herself or assert right. her sexuality or anything when she dresses, you know, more glamorously mm-hmm. he kind of laughs
3: yeah and he she's undermines it yes
2: um, and he even says to her early on he says something like promise me you'll never be, be 36 right yeah which yeah. is a hell of a way to go into a marriage
3: no he is not an ideal mate. By any stretch of the imagination. And he pretty much says that throughout the film. He's like, There's going to be points where you're going to hate me. And he is just like, You probably need a break from me. And all of these other things. And so he knows that he is a difficult partner. He's in no way present or supportive of her the entire time that she's in that house. He is prone to raging out at her. All of these things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which is partly why I'm frustrated. I'm just like, She should just not be in the. I don't know. The love story is not a love story because I don't understand how she is getting any love out of that other than it being this very toxic codependent relationship and hopefully she grows out of that at some point well
2: i i I think we could talk about whether she does at the end of the movie but
3: but i i so i don't i'm not trying to make max a victim per se but i am saying that rebecca does not automatically become a feminist because she rejected everything that max was about or she was trying to or that she sort of showed no respect for sort of the things that he cared about or the life Mm -hmm. that he was trying to build nothing like that doesn't necessarily make her a feminist to me
2: no, I think that's fair, and I don't think we, she doesn't sound like a very nice person. No, no. By anyone's well, description.
3: And And, and, it's, so, and this is, we're, we're now getting into a different conversation, but I, for me, feminism is rooted in, and maybe she did, do, I mean, we don't know enough about her until it, it gets difficult to talk about this, but feminism is sort of rooted in the sort of shared empowerment of all women. Hmm. We have no reason to think that that was who Rebecca was. She just sounds like she was, she was, you know, a uh, sort of entitled and
2: a little scarlet o'hara-ish maybe.
3: Possibly. I mean, judging yeah, sure. So she is not hero or villain to me either, which which also like she's also just not like a she doesn't become this sort of feminist hero in my mind in this
4: film
2: okay let's get back to the story here so it's after that what we call the seduction scene with mrs danvers that joan fontaine's character starts to get a little spine she's like okay i've had it with this shit i've had it with this rebecca bullshit and that's where she you know has the the famous line
5: i want you to get rid of all these things these are mrs de winter's things i am mrs de winter now
2: which I think at that point in the movie is such a triumphant moment to watch her say that finally.
4: Mm-hmm. She's
2: like, get all this shit out of here with Rebecca's name on it. I'm Mrs. DeWinter now. And that's where she starts planning this ball.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Manderley's known for these masquerade balls. And she's decided she's going to do that. And that uh, ends up not going so well.
3: Mm-hmm. Because she's not actually smart. So yeah, <laughs> that's a, a lovely triumphant <laughs> moment. But then she turns around and takes the advice.
2: <laughs> yes, she does. Because she thinks, I think she thinks she's actually got the right relationship to Mrs. Danvers now.
3: There's been nothing to prove that. I think she that.
2: thinks now Mrs. Danvers works for her.
3: No, there's Mrs. <laughs> Danvers never worked for her. Never gave her inc- any inclination that she did. And so for her to assume, oh, just because I stood up and said I'm Mrs. De Winter now, <laughs> that Mrs. Danvers is gonna act totally different. No, you're 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 fighting outside of your weight. Like you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Like, really, you think that she's going to help you pick a costume and not yeah. well, is she not did. looking to advance? She embarrass gave her you? an excellent suggestion no. for a costume. Yeah. Nope. No. <laughs> so, again, it's like you're not actually Mrs. DeWinter because Mrs. DeWinter would have known that bitch is trying to undermine you. Don't trust anything that she says.
2: That's such a horrible scene where she comes down that staircase in
3: her Scarlet O'Hara her best. And
2: she's so proud of it. Yeah. And she's, you know, she feels like she's. Gonna make Maxim so proud, and he turns around and just looks at her with disgust and yells at her. Yeah, <laughs> it says go put literally anything else on. Yeah, because yeah. Mrs. Danvers tricked her into wearing the exact same costume Rebecca wore at the last masquerade ball. And this is where we have the second scene between Joan Fontaine and mm-hmm. Mrs. Danvers up in Rebecca's bedroom.
4: Mm-hmm. Can we?
3: So going back a little bit before that. Okay. So she isn't. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> from what we've seen of her work you have almost as much contempt for this character I really do as Mrs. Danvers I... does
3: I <laughs> identify with Mrs. Danvers in this film <laughs>
2: that's so um, that's so worrying
3: so she's drawing ideas for costumes yeah. and so one of them is sort of like a, a Joan of Arc yeah. sort of thing and then we see one that looks like it might be like a princess sort of costume or something and then she just ends up with and so it's like clear, like this is a woman who has no identity and doesn't know what she wants to be mm-hmm. and so and maybe that's why it's so hard for me to just identify with her as a viewer because she didn't even know who she is. So how can I identify with someone who doesn't know who they are? And again, she's just dumb. Like she's just <laughs>
2: like. I just well, can't. She's not worldly. But,
3: but you don't have to be worldly to recognize someone's trying to play you. Okay, like <laughs> okay. she's absolutely trying to play you in this moment. And it was just an ugly dress. Don't wear that. Like <laughs> no. Uh, anyway, so yes, the, so she goes up to her bedroom and she's crying, or actually Rebecca's bedroom. Right. And she's crying, and so Mrs. Danvers comes in and starts Well, no, in- no,
2: wait a minute, I want because I want to give her credit here. She doesn't... She goes up there to confront Mrs. Danvers. She does. She's pissed off at she that is. Point, which yes. I give her credit for.
3: But then she just cries.
2: This is, you keep complaining she's not tough enough. She's trying to be tough.
3: But barely. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like... You know who you're. She's trying
2: is. to be strong until she lets Mrs. Danvers almost talk her into it's killing It's a jumping
3: out of a fucking window, okay?
5: <laughs> I watched you go down, just as I watched her a year ago. Even in the same dress you couldn't compare.
3: You knew it. You knew that she
5: wore it, and yet you deliberately suggested I wear it. Why do you hate me? What have I done to you that you should ever hate me so? You tried to take her place. You let him marry you. I've seen his face, his eyes. And were the same as those first weeks after she died. I used to listen to him, walking up and down, up and down, all night long, night after night, thinking of her, suffering torture because he'd lost her. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You thought you could be Mrs. Winter, live in her house, walk in her steps, take the things that were hers, but she's too strong for you. You can't fight her. No one ever got the better of her, never, never. She was beaten in the end, but it wasn't a man, it wasn't a woman.
2: It was the sea. Still
4: oh, stop it, stop it.
2: So, yeah, no. But that's another great scene.
3: It
5: is.
2: And
3: that's, again... Very seductive. This is where this becomes almost
2: a horror movie. Yeah. Because she's standing in that window, and Mrs. Danvers is right up in her ear saying, He doesn't love you. He wants to be alone with her. Why don't you just go out the window? And it almost works. Yes. And then we have the shipwreck, and that's where we start entering the last phase of this movie. Really, and almost could have ended with... Their scene in the boathouse, mm-hmm. which is Maxim's big confession,
4: mm-hmm.
2: where you know it, whether he killed Rebecca, or whether Rebecca fell over and hit her head and died, we can argue about. He killed her.
3: It is very. <laughs>
2: you don't. You don't even think it's a question. Very
3: rarely does someone fall over and hit their head <laughs> and die. Like it just no.
2: I mean, he admits he struck her. Yes. And then she sort of stumbled and fell and hit her head. So mm-hmm. yeah, no. yeah, I agree with you. Uh, but the Hayes Code needed that that little bit of cover that, mm-hmm. that the possibility that was an accident gave him. And then that's not even the big confession. The big confession is that he never loved Rebecca. Right. That's the climax of the movie. Whenever you
5: touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. Whenever you looked at me or spoke to me or walked with me in the garden, I knew you were thinking, this I did with Rebecca and this and this. Oh, it's true, isn't it?
0: You thought I loved Rebecca? You thought that?
2: I hated her. Because that's been Joan Fontaine's obsession the entire movie right. was, he'll never love me the way he loves Rebecca. Right. Now we find out he never loved Rebecca at all, because Rebecca was terrible right so i think one of the problems with this movie and it was true in the book too is that that's the emotional climax of the movie right there Mm -hmm. the story is really over Mm -hmm. at that point Mm -hmm. because the whole stakes of the movie have been viewing it from her character's perspective can she overcome the ghost of rebecca and make this man love her right that's Mm -hmm. viewing this as the romance that the character thinks it is that's what it's all about that's a nice the way that scene is filmed is nice and it's it's the exact same thing he does at the end of Rope Hitchcock does at the end of Rope where the camera
3: follows and yeah
2: follows the action of yeah. the story he's telling of the murder mm-hmm. even though there's nothing there. Yeah. Um it's really nicely done.
3: I mean I mean no it's it's definitely I don't know that whole relationship is just a <laughs> series of red flags to me and and the fact that she wasn't out of there after that scene um, where you're, you've clearly married a murderer, is a little baffling to me.
2: Okay, well, wait a minute. Because you're not... I think with both Rebecca and the second Mrs. De Winter, getting out of there was not that easy in the 1930s. I mean, sure. it's not... I mean, look at what she was doing before. She had to be a paid companion to the horrible Mrs. Van Hopper just to make a living.
3: She's probably still better. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know that that was better than probably living in Manderley.
3: Sure. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and maybe this is the moment... Where she claims some sort of agency and decides to be the sort of ride-or-die chick, which, sure, I guess. Um, I
2: think she does. I mean, I think that's the turning point for her character in the movie. She becomes the grown-up then.
3: To cover up a murder, but okay.
2: Yeah, to cover up a murder. She becomes an accomplice. She's telling him how to lie, and she's telling him what to say. She even starts dressing differently. I noticed you noticed that when she came out. You always pay attention to the clothes. (laughs) But the day after that scene, she comes out in a more grown-up dress Mm -hmm. than we've seen her wear in the entire movie.
3: Mm -hmm. Which Max hates, by the way. He sort of says, you know, I've killed whatever, that like young, naive. Right.
2: Well, that's the tragedy of this is that I don't know that he's going to love her after Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Because she has become the grown-up. And she has become almost maybe more than an equal with him because she's sort of... Again, at this point, she's sort of protecting him. Mm-hmm. Um, she even, like, she tells the butler, I don't want Mr. DeWinter to see the papers. Like, protect him from that. Keep yeah. those from him. So she is becoming the lady of the house. She is becoming more controlling of him. And yeah, he's not necessarily into that. That's not what he was looking for in a bride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, do you have anything to say about that last half hour of the movie? Or were you just waiting for it to be over at that point? I was just waiting for it to be over at that I, point. I got a hunch. I looked over and saw it. You were pretty much... <laughs> I think you at that boathouse scene felt like the movie was coming to an end, (laughs) and then it kept on going.
3: Yeah, I was done. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, So we get, what, the final revelation is that... She wasn't actually
3: pregnant. She had cancer, and she knew she was dying, so... And that wasn't something that she'd told her cousin lover...
2: Favelle, right. ...or
3: uh, Mrs. Danvers.
2: Right. So we're led to believe that actually, in a way, it was a suicide. Right. That she... One way or the other was goading Maxim into killing her. Yes. As final revenge, maybe? I don't know. I don't
3: really. <laughs> Wealthy people have too much time on their hands, quite frankly. It's like you're inventing problems for yourself at this point.
2: <laughs> but Maxim gets off. Mm-hmm. And then comes back to Manderley And we get the final line. That's not the Northern Lights. That's Manderley. Yeah. Because Mrs. Danvers. Burned it down. <laughs> set the bitch on fire.
3: Pretty much decided if Rebecca can't live there, no one can. <laughs> and then didn't really plan for her own escape.
2: Well, the, this this should please you. In the book, Mrs. Danvers does not die in that fire.
4: Mm.
2: In the book, they come back and the house is on fire and that's how the book ends. There's no... The assumption in the book is that Mrs. Danvers set the place on fire <laughs> and laughed. <laughs> which okay. makes more sense. Yep. <laughs> so is it a happy ending? <laughs> not... In my
3: opinion, no. These are two people who do not belong together, who are now pretty much bonded by, you know, murder and tragedy. And they lost a nice house.
2: I mean, it really was too much house. Yeah, it was Just way for too
3: much house. The but, two of them. You
2: know. I mean, I think all of your reactions to it, I think, are intended, at least in the book.
4: Mm-hmm. I
2: think that's the story Daphne du Maurier told. Mm-hmm. And that's the brilliance of the book is the tension between the narration how that main character sees the story and how we ne- might read the story. Mm -hmm. Scholar Nicola Watson writes, It has often been rather carelessly assumed that Rebecca is romance fiction. In fact, Rebecca is only romance if the reader confines him or herself to the narrator's viewpoint. From her point of view, her story is ultimately romance, a love story, with a reasonably happy ending. But from the reader's point of view, this love story and its ending look a good deal less euphoric than the narrator tries to make out. And in fact, the book opens after the event's... Of the novel. You know, she goes back and tells the story. But it opens with her and Maxim just kind of traveling, going from second-rate hotel to second-rate hotel, um, avoiding the first-rate places because they don't want to see anybody they know. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, they're just sort of expatriates, cast out from society. Everybody basically knows or thinks that he killed his wife. So really, it, again, it's not a particularly happy no. life. This is Olivia Lang writing in The Guardian. Amazingly, the reader is somehow manipulated or conjoled into thinking Rebecca's murder and its concealment are somehow necessary, even romantic. That being cuckolded is a far worse fate than a woman's death. It is a grim reworking of Bluebeard in which the murderer is suddenly the victim, adorable despite his bloody hands. But who is really punished and for what? Husband and wife have been condemned to the hell of expatriation in a hot, shadowless, unnamed country. Staying like criminals in an anonymous hotel. So, yeah, I don't, it's not necessarily a happy ending, but I think the genius of both the book and the movie is that probably a lot of people see it as just a romantic love story.
3: I don't know how, but okay. Well,
2: it depends how much you buy into the, the point of view of the main character that she's in love with this guy and she wants to be with him and she wants to triumph over the the late wife.
3: Yes, but we all make poor choices in our 20s. <laughs> And that's a poor choice. Did you? I made no choices in my choice. That's how I, I took the, I was above it. <laughs> no, I did uh,
2: No. We, we, we met in your 20s as well. yeah. I'm going yeah. with this. No, mm-hmm. I know.
3: Um, <laughs> so, yes, in my version, I would hope that she would, and growing out of it, it, that sounds very, that sounds like I'm being really sort of dismissive and infantilizing her. But to a certain extent, it is like, we, we, you know. Some things that seem exciting or romantic when you're in your 20s, the older you get, (laughs) the shine comes off of that uh, pretty quickly. And you realize you're married to a murderer um, (laughs) who has problems with women who are Mm self-possessed and challenging. So, yeah, I don't it is not a romance to me. It is cautionary tale.
2: Okay, I think that's fair. Really, when you think about it, she sort of missed the boat. She could have let him go to prison. Right. He would have been hanged for Rebecca's murder. She would have gotten everything. Yeah. She would have gotten Manderley and all the money. She could have gone home and fired Mrs. Danvers.
3: Well, Mrs. Danvers was was going to burn it down anyway, so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> you don't, You don't think that would have worked out no. anyway?
3: No. Not unless she, you know made some sort of deal with mrs danvers prior to and said okay look he's gonna go down for this murder of the woman that you loved and that possibly loved you we'll split everything and go our separate ways and never have to see each other I guess again she and
2: mrs danvers could have gotten together
3: i don't think mrs danvers was interested like no. mrs danvers was very much still in love with rebecca so but maybe she she was like you can have the you know the panties and i'll take everything else <laughs> 'll we'll, you know live happily ever after um so yeah that I, that would have been a great ending as well
2: okay anything else to say about Rebecca would you have liked the main character better if she had dressed better?
3: No, it wasn't about how she was dressed. <laughs> I didn't like the character. Well, you
2: said, you know, one of the reasons Rear Window was your favorite Hitchcock is because Grace Kelly wore such fabulous outfits.
3: I mean, well, that's a very, that's obviously a ridiculous reason to enjoy that movie. I do enjoy her. Joan
2: Fontaine wore those dowdy little sweaters. I
3: thought she hats. looked adorable. She was cute. No, so it wasn't about how she dressed, it was the fact that I thought the character, I just found her annoying. <laughs> just very annoying. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: So this is not going to be one of your one of your favorites.
3: No, but I do appreciate you know being exposed to Mrs. Danvers.
2: Okay. So. I'll <laughs> well, see so you got that. I got that. That'll
3: go down as one of my you know all time characters in film. So. All right,
2: I'm gonna call that a win. All right. All right. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue the Unenthusiastic Critics Halloween Movie Marathon. Nikia, we always like to do at least one recent horror film in these marathons, mm-hmm. so I think that's what we're going to do next week. This, however, is less a case of my advocating for a movie as it is asking for a second opinion on a movie that seemingly everyone else in the world but me thinks is a great horror movie.
3: Okay.
2: We are going to be watching Ari Aster's Hereditary from 2018. Oh, I love that one. Right. This is what I'm saying. It was a critical hit. It was a commercial hit. Everyone talked about how scary it was. Maybe I just wasn't in the mood for it the night I watched it. I did not care for it at all. Okay. So I wanted to revisit it, and as always, the perfect opportunity is to do that with you.
4: (laughs) Okay.
2: Hereditary is currently streaming free for Amazon Prime members, and it's available to rent from most of the other's usual services. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at free Range critic, and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show, or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch.